0: Thank you, Tim. Great, great passage. A little bit scary, is that right? Anyone paying attention to that reading? Uh, It's pretty full-on, and uh, we're going to hear why we are part of that second group. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So we're going to hear about that tonight. That's that's who we are, and we're going to hear why that's the case. I'm going to remind you again, as I do every week these days, Uh, If you have questions, guess what? Q&A time at the end. And the best questions often come at the end. So think as we're going through. Jot them down. Love to have your questions as, uh, as we get to the end. So let me pray. Father, you're a good God. And this awesome word before us tonight is your living and active word. Father, by your Holy Spirit, take this word now and do your work with it. If you need to challenge us, Father, challenge us. If you need to change us, change us. If you need to convict us, convict us. Father, we thank you that you're here with us now, and we ask you to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're up to the fourth week in our, uh, sorry, the fifth week in our series, our vision series, and uh, this will be the last message in this series. Next week, we're going to start a new series uh, in the book of. titus which is going to be fantastic but i want to start tonight by asking has anyone here seen groundhog day you've seen groundhog day so groundhog day is the same day lived over and over again And, and you could ask wouldn't it be great not to deal with repetition wouldn't it be great not to deal with repetition wouldn't it be great not to deal with repetition Very good. Some of you are with me. Fantastic. I mean, if you think about it, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to be free from having to make your lunch every day. That that would be great. It would be, it'd be great to be free from having to mow the lawn. Although, as I reflected this morning, actually, it would be great to have some lawn to mow. Uh, it would be great not to have to make your bed anymore, not to have to sit in traffic anymore, not to have to say sorry anymore. It would be great not to have to offer all those sacrifices again and again and again hang on that's not us is it we we don't have to offer sacrifices again and again and again but there's a context here that assumes that people were doing that and so we want to think a little bit tonight about why sacrifice why was there sacrifice in the old testament and how has that got anything to do with jesus and ultimately with us well, to find the answer to that, we go to the Bible. And uh, if you haven't seen this before, this is our Bible timeline, uh, the Old Testament here from Genesis with creation all the way through to new creation. And there's Jesus' birth, death, death, and resurrection there. So it's a little pictorial overview of the story of the Bible. And in order to find out why sacrifice, or at least where sacrifice turns up, it turns up in a variety of places, but particularly in the book of Leviticus. So Why sacrifice? sacrifice because we sin. Does anyone hear sin? Keep your hands down. Uh, yes, we do, don't we? Each of us sins. The challenge is, what does God say is the punishment for sin? Does anyone know? What's what's the punishment for sin? Death. God says the punishment for sin is death. So if we sin, you and I deserve to... Great. Okay, that's great. It's not great. Actually, it's terrible, but, but that's, that's the situation. So what God did is He put in place a way for sinful people to be forgiven how could that happen well the idea was that you would take a perfect substitute in your place take an animal a perfect animal confess your sins over its head and then when this one dies death is paid for sin you having been associated with the animal your sin has now been paid in the animal. That's why sacrifice. And we see in in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, the first priest, Aaron, getting his instructions. This is what he's told to do. Aaron is to offer a bull for his own sin offering, to make atonement for himself and his household. Now atonement is the restoring of relationship between God and people, making them at one again. So at one atonement. So restoring relationship. The first thing that has to happen for Aaron to be a priest is he has to deal with his personal sin, a bull for him. Then we see later on in this little passage here, Aaron shall bring a goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat that is chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, you guys have heard of a scapegoat before, haven't you? Scapegoats, when we when we pick somebody out and we say, Tim, it's all Tim's fault. It's not actually your fault, Tim, so that's okay. As usual, he says. Okay, so when we pick Tim and we say it's all Tim's fault, right? That's making him to be a scapegoat. Where's the word come from? From this passage here in the Bible. The word didn't exist before. This is the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is to bear the sins of the nation. To bear the sins of the nation. So there were personal sacrifices, and there were national sacrifices. Sacrifices have a whole variety. There are all sorts of different types of them. But there are some common threads that run through it. The first thing to note is the sacrifice for sin has a personal cost. Has a personal cost. Because what you have to do to have your sin forgiven is you have to bring something that you own to God. No problems. God can have my old shoes. Nope, not the way it works. What you have to do is you have to go to your flock, because you all keep flocks, don't you? Fantastic, really good. Well, what I want you to do is look at your flock, and I want you to find the best sheep that you have. Everyone got that in mind? Got your favourite? Okay, Now that one is the one that you need to bring. It's your favourite because it looks the best because it doesn't have any blemishes. It has a whole ear on both sides. It's got got ear on it. It's got four legs. You have to bring the best one and offer it to God. So the first thing to note is that the sacrifice is a personal cost to you. The second thing is it needs a posture of repentance. What do I mean by that? See, the only only person who's bringing a sacrifice to God is someone who goes, I've stuffed up. Are you with me? Because the people who don't realize that they've stuffed up, guess what they're doing? They're counting all of their sheep. They're not really worried about their sin. So you you have to be worried about your sin. You have to have a posture of repentance. God, I'm really sorry. And now I'm bringing lamby to you. Right? So you have to have a posture of repentance. When you get there, you don't just go, cool, I'm going to take care of this whole sacrifice thing. Let me just slit the throat. You don't do it. You come to the temple and you meet the priest who says, I will help you offer this animal in a way that's acceptable to God. So the priest helps you to offer your sacrifice. Then we see there's this thing I've called peaceful practice. I don't know if you guys know this, but after we've offered lamby, lamby gets chopped up, and the best bits, the fat bits, get put on the fire to be burnt up. And it says that they're a pleasing aroma to God. Now, does anyone like the smell of steak cooking? If you do, that's a holy thing, isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know? It's it's an, it's an aroma pleasing to God, pleasing to me too. Fantastic. Here's the thing: once that's once that's burnt up, okay, some of the cut up lamb goes to the priest. It actually helps them be looked after. So some of it goes to them. Who gets the rest? Lamb barbecue time. You get to enjoy. The lamb, the rest of the lamb that was sacrificed, you get to eat it. And so I actually think this is really beautiful, right? You come into the temple with the weight of sin on you. After it's sacrificed, after you see this death in your place, guess what you do? Sit down and have a, have a feast. A peaceful meal in the presence of God. That's actually really beautiful. You know the only problem with this whole sacrifice thing? There's a high probability of repetition. <laughs> because... You came because you sinned, and guess what's going to happen in a pretty short order? You're going to sin again. This is what it says in Hebrews uh, chapter 10 at the start of this chapter. Have a look with me at chapter 10 verses 1 to 3. It says, The law, this is speaking about the law like the bit in Leviticus we were reading. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship otherwise would they have not stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins This is really remarkable, right? What does it tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that the um, the sacrificial system is a shadow preparation for the real thing to come. I I said this this morning, but I I just want you to think about this. Imagine God wanted to forgive us our sins. How was he going to do it? Well, he's going to do it through Jesus dying on the cross, right? One day, Jesus is beamed down from heaven, fully formed as a man, on the cross, dies and says it's all done and everyone goes what just happened what did we just see happen there's no context for understanding what went on so what it's saying here is that the old testament system sets us up to understand what jesus will do sacrifice and substitution bloodshed life it explains and prepares us for the real thing that's jesus It also says here that sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. You might wonder why we do confession week in, week out here. Really? Do I need to be reminded that I've sinned since last week? Again? Yep. Yeah, we really do. And so these sacrifices were a very vivid way for the people of God to be reminded that they had sinned. Now, I want to suggest to you tonight, this might be a radical thought for you, but the temple would have looked more like a butcher's, than it would have looked like church tonight. Don't don't, don't overdo it, right? It, it was a holy place, but there were animals getting chopped up and cooked all around the place when it was time for the sacrifices. And so how often did they need to come? Well, they, they should come when they've sinned. And so if you're an apprentice of Moses, we've been talking about Jesus' apprentices, but if you're in the Old Testament, you are following Moses and the law of Moses. If you're Moses' apprentices, then when it comes to the temple... You have your frequent flyer card, right? You're regularly coming into the temple to offer the sacrifices that are required. See, in the Old Testament, they were obedient and they were busy, but the system was utterly unable to solve the sin problem. And the writer to Hebrews sees this and says, hey guys, if it could finish sin, then no one would have a job anymore. But they're here week in, week out. So what's going on? Well, we get to Jesus. Have a look with me, if you can, at verses 11 and 12. So in chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, got to look out for a but in the the, the, the Bible, okay? But. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what do we learn here? Well, we we learned earlier in the series that when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he had said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies as the Lamb, a perfect substitute for me and for you. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and so he dies as the perfect sacrifice. But this passage tells us something we didn't know up till now. Have a look at verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, we're told that Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he is also the priest. Jesus is the priest who makes atonement. Now, can we know whether Jesus' offer of himself did the job? How can I know? Well, the answer is that he was a sufficient sacrifice. And you're ready for this amazing theological insight. Jesus sat down. If you're listening on the podcast, the church is erupting with joy now. Okay, That, that is what is happening before your very eyes. It's not exciting, is it? You're sitting down now. What what does it mean that Jesus sat down? Well, have a look at verse 11. See what the priests are doing in verse 11. Day after day, every priest what? Stands. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. When Jesus had offered this one sacrifice for sin, he he sat down. And what does that tell us? That a sufficient, perfect and total price had been paid for our sin. There was no more need for him to. To stand. And because Jesus' resurrection makes him alive after the sacrifice, he sits because he's alive and able to sit at the right hand of God. Now, I've got two signs up here. Uh, One is a time expired, the other is roadworks. I'm going to use them to help us to understand two big principles that sit behind what we've just heard. See, there's one who will always accuse you all the time. His name is Satan. The accuser, and he loves telling you that you're unworthy, that your sin is unforgivable, that you can't come before God again. He's always accusing us, and I want you to know that because of Jesus's death, his time has expired. H- have a look with me at verse thir- uh, verse fourteen, verse fourteen. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What has Jesus done? Verse 14 tells us, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you know that you've been made perfect? You go, ask my wife. It hasn't worked. Here's the thing. You've been declared perfect in the sight of God. That's what justification means. This is our big word for tonight, okay? Justification. To be justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. right? Just as if I'd never sinned. You aren't considered guilty before God anymore. Well, how can I say that? Have have a look at verses 17 to 18. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So here's the thing. Does God have a little memory blank over your sin? Does he just forget the sin? Well, I'm not sure that God has a little bit of amnesia because you remember your sin, don't you? In fact, that can be our trouble sometimes, can't it? But here's the thing you need to know. Even if you remember the sin, even if God remembers it, what it means when it says he will remember our sins and lawless acts no more is they will never be counted against you again. They'll never be counted against you again. You can know that you are perfect in the sight of God. So what about the other side of the equation, where you ask Carolyn, "Am I perfect yet?" And she says, "No." That's true, incidentally. What What about the other side? Well, think of it like roadworks. Why do we have roadworks? We We made the road; it's pretty good, but then we dig it up again and we remake it and we remake it and we remake it. It's always striving to be perfect, but it's never there. Well, that's what it means here when it says, despite the fact that we have been made perfect forever. He makes perfect forever, have a look at verse 14, those who are being made holy. There's an ongoing work of holiness that God's doing in us. And that's our next big word, sanctification. The ongoing work of God making us more and more holy. So you're justified, declared perfect, and the holy God is making us more and more holy. That means today you should be more holy than you were yesterday. Well, probably not yesterday. Over time, the Holy Spirit is making us more and more holy. And uh, this is what it says um, in Hebrews there. It says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. God's going to help you choose to obey Him more and more. And some of you will be able to say, I know that. I'm not what I once was. I'm not yet what I will be, but I'm not, not what I once was. Praise God. Justification sanctification beautiful beautiful truths so i want to ask you jesus's apprentices do you believe this do you believe this church good yep some of you do but that's good here's what i want to ask you do you recall this when satan tempts us when he whispers in our ear all the rubbish that he would who ru- would love to whisper in your ear you're unworthy you did that again god god couldn't forgive you if you did that again you have let him down one too many times. When Satan whispers in your ear, do you remember these great truths? Do you recall them to mind? Because the way it works is you will feel terrible. And so I want to tell you the difference between these two words, conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. Let me tell you the difference. Conviction, God will often prompt you about your sin. If you feel bad about your sin, that's not necessarily bad. That's a good thing to feel bad about our sin. However, here's the way to tell whether it's from God or Satan. Conviction shows me my sin and leads me to the cross where I beg God to forgive me. That's conviction. I'm showing my sin and in my distress, I go to God and I say, please forgive me. Condemnation is the opposite. Whisper in my ear, you've sinned again. And what do I want to do? And this is what sin will always, 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 when it comes from Satan, will always do. You'll feel ashamed. And what you want to do is you want to hide from God. God, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. And we hide. Condemnation, that's that's the word from the devil. When you feel that you can't come before God, when you want to run away. And so church, what I want to say to you tonight is when you feel condemned, you need to let your theology trump your feelings. What we need to do, our theology should transform our experience. We need to stand on the word of God and say, even though I feel like rubbish, get lost, Satan. I'm standing on the word of God and I'm coming to Jesus when I feel horrible. And I'm going to go, stuff you, Satan. I'm not listening to you today. I am standing on the word of God and I'm coming before you. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Now, talking about coming into a holy place, uh, does anyone know what this place here is up on the screen? It's the SCG. Uh, Now, if you choose, while there's a game on at the SCG, if you choose to walk onto that holy place, perhaps without any clothes on, as some people want to do, if you choose to walk onto that holy place uh, uninvited, what happens to you? You do, you get removed. Does anyone know what uh, the removing involves these days? Not only do you get escorted off by the by the cops, but what happens? You get fined and you get banned. you are never allowed to come to the to the scG again. Isn't that extraordinary? So you get fined, you get crash tackled, and then you get banned forever because you came presumptuously into that holy place. Now here's the amazing thing, at some times the gates are open and you are allowed to go and play on the scG. I've done it. Has anyone here done it? Yeah, it's an amazing thing, right? You go, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here. But the gates are open. Those who are in charge let you come onto the field. And guess what? There's no fines, no expulsion, no lifetime ban, just a heck of a lot of fun because you're invited by the trustees into that sacred space. Keep that in mind. Let's have a look at verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, for Jesus' apprentices, you have confidence to enter the presence of the Holy God. Not bowl into his presence and say, hey God, you should have me. No, 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 no. Because of Jesus' washing, because Jesus prepared the way, because he invites us, we can come confidently into his presence. And we have assurance that sitting at the right hand of God is our great high priest who will say, that's my one. They can play Christians are people at peace with God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Christians are people at peace with God. What a wonderful blessing that is. Now, what do we do with all this great truth? What do we do with all this great truth? Well, have a look with me again at at verse uh, verse, uh, 22. It says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings. Let us draw near to God, And then it says a little bit later, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And then in verse 24, it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see those three let us statements there? Very good. (laughs) Very good. So here's the thing. Let us, first and foremost, here's the first let us. Uh, let us draw near to God. Guys, I want to encourage you, you can draw near to God. You can know him as a friend, not just an awesome, mighty, scary deity. You can know God. Do you know God as friend? And if you do, do you draw near to him regularly? Let me encourage you, church, let us draw near to God to spend time with a friend. The second one is, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. I want you to marvel at the Scriptures. I want you to marvel at the Scriptures. Do you love the Bible? Don't need to say it out loud. Here's the thing. I know you do, right? You're here tonight. It's great. Do you love the Bible? When I say Romans 8.1, you go, yeah, fabulous. I love these truths. I am nutty enough to actually genuinely, that's genuinely, I love this truth. Why do I want you to love it so much? Why do I want you to marvel at it? What we're told here is, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. How are you going to hold on to it when people are making fun of it? How are you going to hang on to it when you go, I don't know what to do with Leviticus, it's all boring and difficult. How are you going to hold on to it unless you love it? I want you to marvel at the Scriptures. And there was actually a secret little Easter egg here for the 6 p.m. service, which I didn't reveal at the other services. I think I've said this to you before, guys, but um, you guys can all find your way through the Marvel Universe, right? And you know what order they came in. And you know who does what where. And all I'd say to you is, wouldn't it be a shame if we had more knowledge of the Marvel Universe than of the marvelous universe of our Heavenly Father? That'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? It'd be a waste of all that good brain power that we have. So I want you to marvel at the Scriptures. The third one is, the third lettuce is to let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do you know what I need to do to spur you on to love and good deeds? I have to actually remember you. Isn't it amazing? Let us consider how we may spur one another on to good deeds. It's not just, hey, Tim, keep going, pal. That's really good. I've got to actually think of, if I'm going to consider how I'm to spur Tim on, I have to think of him. Then I have to do something about it. And so these days what happens, because I've got this incredible communication device. Has anyone seen one of these before? I have this incredible communication device. Now, it can lead us in all sorts of dark and terrible places. It can be a wonderful work tool. It can be an enslaving master. I want to show you tonight, church, redeem your phone, right? When I think of somebody and I go, I wonder how they're doing. Why don't I text them and say, and I do this all the time, I am thinking of you and I'm praying for you right now. Now, guys, literally, it doesn't cost you anything to do that anymore, does it? I mean, nobody keeps track of what the text cost it used to be a thing so it doesn't cost you anything but imagine the encouragement it is to somebody else when you say i was thinking of you and i'm praying for you right now now the only reason we don't do it is one probably i haven't been told to do it so here's a good start number two when do i think of you when do i pray for you think about them Act, do something about it and encourage your brothers and sisters. It tells us, when should we give up? Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. When can you stop encouraging each other to keep going? When you and I are standing shoulder to shoulder, alive and ready for the return of Jesus. And we go, hey, look at that cloud. That's a pretty unusual cloud. It's a bit bright. Seems to be a bloke standing on top of it. Oh my goodness, it's Jesus. Just going to text a couple of friends and say, hey, have you seen Jesus? Jesus is turning up. Guys, that's when you can stop. And in the meantime, I want you to persevere in doing that more and more. I want you to note too, you know those people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Do you know that you can't be a Christian and fulfill this, encourage one another. You can't do it if you're a solo rider because there's no one to encourage. Don't give up meeting together, it says, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So how might we live this out? I'm going to give you a graph, church. Are you ready for a graph? Like, that's exciting, isn't it? Here's a graph. It's got some axes. High, low, big, small. Here's what I want to tell you. As our meeting sizes get smaller, our intimacy level goes up. So, in a congregation like this, do I know everyone by name? I don't know everything that's happening in everybody's lives here. But if I'm hanging out with a couple of friends, that's a smaller one, right? A smaller group here. I'm going to know what's happening in their lives, aren't I? So as the group size goes down, the level for intimacy goes up. Well, what are the groups that meet at New Life? Well, you could meet in an auditorium like this right now. Sometimes we meet in a living room. You could meet around a coffee table. You could meet God in a chair on your own. Different levels, different purposes. Think with me. In the auditorium, say we have 50 to 150 people. It's a community-sized group. Okay, that's Sunday. Fantastic. You guys are in it. Wonderful. We have a second group, a lounge room size meeting, say six to 20 people. That's our life group. That's a family size group. That's a smaller group. We love our life groups here. And then there's hopefully the the, uh, individual size group where you meet with God yourself, right? I pray, I read the Bible, me and God one-on-one. And some of your chairs that you sit in as you meet with God one-on-one have a steering wheel in front of them. And you don't close your eyes when you're praying in that chair, but that's okay. You are meeting with God, right? Brilliant. What I want to suggest to you is that we think that there's actually potentially a fourth space we're missing here at New Life. The coffee table size group. The coffee table size group is three to four. It's a friend size group. We're going to call it a prayer square exciting, isn't it? I know. Very, very excited. Why, why would we do a coffee table-sized group? I think there's some potential benefits to come from it. I'm calling it beta churchware, okay? We've never tried this before. We're giving it a go. Church is only eight years old. It's not even eight years old. We can try stuff, right? So this is beta churchware called a prayer square. What What's it going to be? It's going to be an opt-in additional thing. You don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. But we want to give you an opportunity when you fill in your little form here to say, yellow box, I'm in for the experiment. Um, It'll be choose your own meeting and organisation times. So do you want to meet online? No problems. Do you want to meet in an actual coffee shop? No problems. Do you want to meet once a month? I don't mind. Choose your own adventure. It'll be structured for inclusion. So it won't just be, hey, friends, get together and make everybody who's not part of your square feel ripped off because they see your pictures on Instagram. That's not what we're doing, okay? What we're going to do is we'll probably have two people from a life group and then two people maybe who can't get to a life group and we'll put them into a group. Guys with guys, girls with girls. So it'll be structured for inclusion and it'll be a forum for our enduring value. Well, remember, we're a church over here that we want to be faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring, When we say that we want to be an enduring church, we've got three questions that go with this enduring value. I love them. Question number one says, where are you weak and in danger of falling? Where are you weak and in danger of falling? And tonight, someone's going to stand up and just call it out. Is that right? We'd never do that here, right? Because this forum doesn't have the level of relational intimacy to make that possible. But the next question is instructive it says who knows you well enough to ask this question you are weak somewhere I'm weak who knows me well enough to ask that question and thirdly who am I strengthening to run the race we want to create a space where you can be known and you can be strengthened and encouraged so this new thing this prayer square small group size high on intimacy unlike our life groups and our Sunday services they all have good roles to play, but different things to do. So in practice, what do we want you to do? We want you to have a home Sunday service. In other words, we want to be able to expect you at one service in particular. Now, we've got three other options, so if your week's working differently, no problems, but we'd love to have one you call home. When it comes to life group, we'd love you to choose a time and a type. There are men's groups, women's groups, and combo groups, which are men and women meeting together. There are Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, potentially Thursdays. Tell us on your form here when you can do life group. And if you can't do it, maybe you can opt into a prayer square. Join the experiment. Tick the yellow box and uh, come on an amazing ride. It sounds like the blue and yellow, I mean the blue and red pill, doesn't it? Take the yellow square and see where it'll lead you. I actually think it'll be really great, church. So here's the thing. At the end of the day, we don't have any animals to sacrifice. You go, man, I won't bring lammy. To God, because I don't have a lambie. It's all been done by Jesus anyway. What if you were asked to sacrifice something precious and the precious thing was the best of our time? Now that's a high sacrifice in our world, isn't it? I'm going to give my time to encourage someone someone else in their walk with Jesus. You see, next year is all about growing and maturing apprentices and I think these steps will give us the best possible chance we can have of making apprentices to Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. And your son Jesus calls us into friendship and into relationship. Father, we want to follow him with all our hearts. And we want others to join us in that. Father, would you help us, because we're utterly forgiven, to care for those around us so that they may stand forgiven on the final day. Amen. All right. There we go. That's a little bit of encouragement on meeting together. I would love to hear if you've got any questions uh, to get us started, uh, or to um, yeah, they can come from the passage or anything else that's going on at the moment. So, has someone got a question to get us started tonight? Yes. Always helpful to have a first question. So, thanks, mate. What's your question, Thomas? Um, mine's just a bit of curiosity. Um, yeah. When we look back to the children of Israel they um, took a sacrifice they took a male sheep or yep. to the, the priest um, how often like you know we sin all every day how often do you believe they actually did that and was it for a family or was it the individual because if it was me today I would have run out of sheep <laughs> <laughs> look I absolutely love this question in fact I love this question that I labored on it last night and um, I actually didn't find a satisfactory answer Um, I went to a whole bunch of Jewish uh, websites and and read all sorts of stuff, and man, I got buried in Jewish holidays and various types of thing with things, and I I walked out with fog. Here's what I know from what it what it says here. Have a look at um, chapter 10, verse 3. Uh, It says those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now there was a Day of Atonement for the people of Israel, a day where they were supposed to meet with God and offer this sacrifice, okay? And so my observation would be they at least had to do it once a year. And I suspect people did it more, but I found nothing that gives me any confidence to announce from the front on how often. Is that okay? I suspect it's just like us though. There are people with tender consciences, probably had smaller flogs. (laughs) And there were people who were pretty gung-ho and comfortable with themselves who didn't do it very often. But it's a great question, and it, it, you're on track. I, I, I share your inquiry and, and curiosity, but um, that'll be that'll be my best answer. Thanks, mate. Someone else, another question. Yeah, Sky. Um, going back to your little graph about yes the inter- intimacy and group size thing, um. The coffee table thing sounds interesting and I like it, but I'm just curious as to why you would find a substitute rather than try and increase the int- intimacy in the big group? Yes, great question. Um, is this, isn't this is this just admitting defeat? Um, are you really saying no one knows anyone in a life group? Why are you doing this? Why don't we just have better groups instead of new types of meeting? Is that roughly right? Something like that? Yeah, great. I think that's a really good question. Um, So my answer to that would be, I want our life groups to be awesome. This isn't an anti-life group move. And if it was, I'd be making everybody have one. What we're saying instead is, um, I think there are brilliant things that come out of our life groups. But in a mixed group, say I've got a mixed group, guys and girls that's what happens in my house every Wednesday night and we say hey guys why don't you share just if if a couple of guys could just share where they're weak and in danger of falling the silence is filled with awkwardness isn't it I don't think that's a failure of life groups Um, I think that's just a recognition of some of the difficulties of how we want to deal with sensitive stuff Um, And so I want our life groups to be awesome. And it's been a huge blessing to me to have a life group in my house. Um, And you guys have been part of one for a little part of that as well. Um, What it means is I know people. They pray for me. I know what's happening in their lives. It's great. But there is another possible depth of friendship that can't be fostered just in that environment. And so, Sky, really, I'm just saying, let's try it out. I'm going to fly a kite next year and see what happens. And it's not an obligation or an admission of defeat it's really just saying couldn't we strive for even deeper relationship and if it comes off wouldn't that be great does that sound okay but it's a great question it's a really it's a a smart question as we make some changes so thank you it's good another question yeah tom oh doug um hebrews i've always found is one of the best toolboxes in the bible It's a great tool for witnessing with other people. But who wrote it? Any thoughts on the authorship? (laughs) I love it. Fantastic question. Um, So uh, we're going to do Hebrews next year as part of our um, idea to mature apprentices because I think it's just a fabulous book. Love it. Um, Who wrote it? Great question. Um, Some people say Paul wrote it. Okay. Um, Some people would say Apollos wrote it. Um, I think they've both got uh, cases for them, although I, I think Paul's not really likely. Apollos is possible because he's a cool guy who hangs around at, at Here's the guy who I think it is. Um, I, I actually think it's, it's probably Barnabas, uh, is my guess. Um, the reason people say it could be written by Paul is there are times when it sounds like Paul. It's definitely Jewish, otherwise you don't understand the Hebrew background enough in order to write all this stuff about sacrifices. So it sounds like Paul, it's Jewish, but it isn't Paul. I really don't think it's Paul. And so I'm looking for someone who's Jewish background, but so soaked in Paul that gets the trajectory of Paul while having their own unique verse, voice. And so my guess, total speculation, and I'll do some more research before we preach it next year, but my guess is that it's Barnabas, um, because he has enough profile in the church that his writing, although he's not an apostle, could be recognized as authoritative because he spent so much time hanging out with Paul. So total speculation, Doug, but that would be my first shot at that. Is that okay? Thank you for asking. Uh, Tom, question? Yeah, I just wondered when it says in Chapter 10 that people, some are in the habit of not meeting together. Do you have a thought as to why that might be? or? Um, I, I didn't make a, a much of it, did I? Uh, so verse 24, it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. <laughs> it's hilarious, isn't it? Here's what I'd say. Meeting together is a habit. Right? You, you put aside time to do the things that you love to do. Right? Has anyone got an exercise program? That they that they stick to? Literally none of you. Okay, some of two of you maybe. Okay, so I go riding on a Tuesday morning. I ride at home indoors on Tuesday morning. Thursday morning is a long ride outdoors, and Saturday morning I go out really early and ride on Saturday morning. That is every week, three times a week. It's the habit that I have. And so there's no ifs nor buts, no uh, will I, won't I? Just my habit. Why? Because I need to stay fit because it's how I deal with stress in my brain. I need to have sweaty exercise. Just otherwise, I, I, I don't, don't deal with well with stress. So that's a priority. So my priority leads to a habit. And my habit holds me accountable. Now, I think this gathering thing that we're doing tonight, hi, church, you win, right? You're here. Okay, so I'm not talking to you. So well done, you guys are great. What happens is people get out of the habit of meeting together and they get into the habit of not meeting together. Are you with me? You form the alternative habit. I want to stay home for the amazing things that are on TV on Sunday night. Said no one ever. right? But what we do is we go, oh, it's a little bit hard. Tim said it's windy tonight. We won't see people. The, the, The stuff that gets in the way of people coming to meet with the people of God is tragic. If what we're hearing here is life and hope and forgiveness. If the living God is here. I mean, I, I told this story this morning. Sorry, Tom, you got me wound up, right? I'm ready There. To... I, I was talking to uh, a guy um, uh, after school the other day, and, and he said um, his kid in year two and year four are now out five nights a week training for sport. Five nights a week. And I went, really? And he said, yep, at this age... The guy in year two, so how old are you if if you're in year two? Seven or eight? Their games are in orange regularly. Now, I don't mind sport, and I don't mind even traveling for sport, but here's the thing. When I say, hey, man, I'd love to have you at a life group, I can't possibly fit it in. And I'm like, that's right. This needs to be really, really clear. That's right. But you're not fitting it in because you found something else more important. That's the reality. No ifs, no buts. That's the reality. Now, that's not the end of the line. We don't have to, it's not the, but all I'm saying is our priorities decide what we do, Tom. And I think the point here is as some are in the habit of doing, we develop a habit that prioritizes worthless things among the essential things. Long answer, Tom. Probably not what you're looking for, but thank you for asking. Gave me a little vent moment, so that's great. Oh, is there one more question? Yeah, Tim. And then we'll finish up. Um, in verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Yes. Can you um, speak a little bit more about the making his enemies his footstool? Um, it seems to be a negative thing. It, it seems to indicate... Sometimes his second coming or yeah, or is it where there's hard hearts um, that need changing that will bring his enemies to him R- which is it or can you yep. speak a bit more yeah great question uh, don't we not like the icky bit about judgment does anyone like judgment do you, do you hear what it says in the passage tonight it says it's a terrible it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God that doesn't fill me with Happiness, so this is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know there's a bit in Psalm 23 uh, where it says, you know, we get all those, uh, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then there's this weird bit. I heard somebody said that this was read at a pagan wedding recently. Pagan wedding recently. And they stopped at verse 4 because verse 5 says this. You ready? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we go. Why do we have to hear about enemies at that point? Aren't we doing all beautiful shepherdy things? Well, here's the thing: the reason that Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool is that one day Jesus's name will be lifted up and exalted over all others. There will be no opposition left because nobody will be able to stand before the coming of the son of god and so why does he wait his enemies are actually all arrayed before him He has defeated his greatest enemy sin death and satan and all he's waiting for is the day where he gets to put his feet up on top of them and say done sign sealed and delivered and so uh is it a hopeful thing no i just think it's an utterly victorious thing one day jesus will put up his feet on top of his enemies And all those who've raged against him will be utterly defeated. Now, that's true today, but it will be revealed as truth on the last day. Does that make sense? Have I helped you, Tim? Roughly. Okay. Guys, it's awesome. Jesus is amazing. Can I encourage you? Don't be Jesus' enemy on the day he comes back. Don't be the footstool, be the one cheering and going, He's my man. And do you know what he'll say gloriously? You're my son. You're my daughter. And I want that reception. It'll be fantastic. I should stop talking. We're going to do our.